Be Fabulous with Vibs and Vicky, the ThinkShift podcast for professionals who aspire to be fabulous leaders, those who not only succeed, but also purposefully seek to reinvent the world. Welcome to the first Be Fabulous podcast recorded in 2021. Uh, it's, it's cool to be back and, and we got, guess who? Guess who's back? Say hello. Me. Vicky's back. <laughs> Vicky's back. You know, I realize you haven't been on a podcast since your, uh, since your trip. Um, I took my wonderful soul basical and then disappeared into the ether vips and it's all gone horribly wrong since then. <laughs> That's right. You see, when you could disappear into the ether, COVID gets worse, the world falls apart, but now you're back. Podcasts so everything will be happen. happy and good again. <laughs> We're back, vips. Okay, we also have... Um, we also have another guest today. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to introduce him. I'm going to have him say hello. Sean Beard is back on again for the second time. Um, you know, he was on previously and he talked to us about sustainability and recycling in particular. And, you know, I happen to know that uh, he, you know, he's working on, on several entrepreneurial ventures in that space and more, more to come on that. However, because that wasn't challenging enough for Sean, he, uh, he and his wife, AJ... Um, have also started a nonprofit, and the nonprofit is called Minus Thirteenth. So, Sean, tell us yes a little bit Hi. about Minus Thirteen. Sure. Um, so, Minus Thirteen. Well, I'll, I'll back it up just a little bit. Um, you know, over twenty twenty, while we were all enjoying that uh, that wonderful period of time, you know, one of the things obviously we saw was a lot of the Black Lives Matter protests, all of the things that were there. And it it, it really hit us. Um, we live in Seattle, so we're in the Pacific Northwest, which, which admittedly, somewhat to our consternation, seems to be in a perpetual state of unrest. We would like to find a solution there. But it's um, well, one of the things we looked at each other, and my wife and I looked at each other and said, well, what could we do more, right? And... Um, and and to give a little bit more background, my wife is African American, and we've got two uh, mixed race children. I am Caucasian, uh, and we have two mixed race children. And we wanted to understand, you know, like like I think most parents, they want to build a better life, and they want to provide their children with the every available opportunity. And we started thinking about what what opportunities do we have that other parents don't have. And, and how can we do more um, in that space? And so we started looking at what, what are the systemic problems? Because we started seeing, you know, there's the defund the police movement. There's a lot of things there. And, and in a lot of ways, a lot of the things we heard were, were more treating symptoms of the problem, not necessarily going after root cause. And so we started looking at what are kind of root cause of some of the, some of the problems we have. And we... we landed on the 13th amendment to the United States constitution. Wow. That's, that's one hell of a leap. I mean, you're going back to the foundations of the country almost. How, how did you get there? Um, so another thing that, that I've been very passionate about also is, is looking at how, um, how we treat our prisoners, how we, well, what our, what, what our criminal justice system really looks like. And, and <clears throat> I, I wanted to just read real quick, Section 1 of the 13th Amendment, and you'll, you'll see how we got there. Um, section 1 of the 13th Amendment says, Neither slavery 
nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. And the hard part on that is that this is the notorious slavery exception clause. And, and I know a lot of people haven't heard of this or even aware of it, but it basically keeps slavery very much alive and well and fully legal in the United States if you have been convicted of a crime. And this is where we kind of landed and, and, and we can, when we started looking at history and we started seeing how things occurred, um, it becomes this, uh, the 13th Amendment starts to be a, an interesting place to look at and started looking at, well, what are the things that we could do to remedy this, this problem? So, Sean, tell us a little bit more about, about that. Like, how does that keep the, the 13th Amendment alive? Like, what is it about that uh, phrase that is so interesting? Um, well, like, if I use an example from Washington State, I was talking with a friend of mine that works with the state. And, you know, they wanted, they needed labor to do some task. This could be highway cleanup. This could be moving moving trash. It could be a lot of different things that, that they would want, the state would want to use a slave labor for. And it was my understanding at the time that basically the state paid an administrative fee of $1.50 an hour um, for inmates to do that work. Whereas if I look in the city of Seattle, the minimum wage is $15 an hour. So the state is able to use that legally use the labor from the prisoners and use it at roughly no cost whatsoever. And when you start thinking about how that gets implemented in, a, in also a, a country where a lot of our prison systems have been privatized, now you start talking about privatization of the prisons with slave labor. And what does that start to look like? And, and that's where we start having serious problems with the exception clause to slavery. Now, where so this? Sean, oh, go ahead. Sean, are you saying that there's an incentive to have more people incarcerated in order to have cheap labor to do these different activities? There absolutely is, and and that's why currently in this country there is more of a sense of um, jail time and being incarcerated as punishment, and there is no real focus on rehabilitation. And helping mm. them reintegrate because having people caught in the system is good for that system, um, no matter how, how inhumane it may be. So you're saying if we see more effort on on rehabilitation, integrating back into society, less less of the incarceration, we would know that the balance has shifted. Yes, I, I would say so. Sure, Sean, can you read that exemption clause again? Just because I, I want, I, I know there's people who are going to be listening to this. Mm -hmm. that, that's a pretty rich passage. And I, I want to make sure that they really latch on to the, to the, to the, bit, that, the bit that's the exemption. Sure. Um, so I'll, I'll, I mean, the, I'll, I'll read the whole sentence again um, because it, the exemption is actually the majority of the amendment itself. But... Uh, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, 
whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. So slavery is fine if you're slavery is fine if you're convicted of a crime. Yeah, and it's, so make it easy to convict for crimes, um, and then you've got your your workforce. Correct, and 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 we've even seen this um, last year. When in Florida, they voted, the people in Florida voted to allow convicts or former felons who had been released the right to vote. And so in order to combat that or because the folks within the powers that be within Florida didn't like that, they actually then imposed a a fine, if you will, on that's fine, you can vote once your bill is paid off to the state and this is the legal fees and what and the cost of incarceration and this could be 200 to 300,000. dollars And so effectively you're saying if you want the right to vote you have to pay this amount of money that will be really hard for you to ever accumulate and it starts to really look a lot like indentured servitude at that point in order to get your right to vote in order to be a full citizen again. And you know, and I think that where this really starts to hit is, is again, if we look at, at you know, I've, I've been criticized in the past by others because I think that the one thing that the human race is really good at is being absolutely horrible to each other. And um, it, it replays this thing, that, that this theme that keeps replaying throughout our history. And it's... Um, it's how slavery really gets justified. It's it's how we really start to think of things in terms of, you know, people who are in slavery. They are they're subhuman. They're the words that have been used through history have been savages and heathens, and and these things are very powerful concepts because once we deduce that somebody is subhuman, it helps justify the things that we're going to do to them and makes us feel better about it, as opposed to. We can't do this to a human being, but we can do it to somebody who's less than, right? And we've seen that theme played out several times throughout history. Um, and if we if we think about slavery in and of itself, um, you know, the the mechanism of it, it's it's typically or it's almost exclusively been used to solve labor shortage problems. So if you have a colonizing force come to a new area to set up some level of industry, they would typically um, work to enslave the indigenous or the people that were already there, the conquered, if you will. Um, but there's an interesting story uh, around, an, uh, I've told a couple of, to a couple of people, it's around Cortez's pigs, and it kind of explains how African slavery came to the Americas. And when uh, Western Europeans first started coming to the Americas, there was an estimated 30 million or so um, Native Americans running around North America. But as the conquistadors started making their way into the Americas, they brought all of their diseases with them from Europe and actually decimated the populations. So that by the time the British colonists landed in the United States, there wasn't enough indigenous to enslave to solve the labor shortage problems they had in terms of crops and sending things back to England. And so that's where the African slave trade came into play, was to solve the fact that the European diseases had already done their damage against the Native Americans. And so now we, like there was, 
what, 400,000 slaves came to the United States, a million went to Brazil, and I think 200,000 went to the Caribbean, all as part of the African slave trade that came through. And it was all just that, that same that same piece repeated, and we started seeing it 400 years ago, where these were subhuman, these were savages, these were property. And, and that's been a cultural piece that has been with us ever since. That's, I mean, that's, that's really deep because you're going back. I mean, you're, you're anchoring this to a, to, to a slightly different narrative. You know, this has always existed, almost, is, uh, is the way you're describing it. And it's just reincarnated itself and codified itself in different ways through history. Yeah, it's, uh, if people can get through it, there's the book Guns, Germs, and Steel which was a very interesting book on like understanding how did Western Europe come in to conquer the known world, right? Or conquer a large portion of the world. How did that happen? And that, that was one of the questions that the author was, was approaching, but it gave a, a narrative that kind of showed this pattern repeat itself, whether you're dealing with Asia Pacific tribes, you know, conquesting on from one Island to the next to, uh, Things happening with the Mongols and, and China and Asia to, you know, the, the Romans and then, you know, eventually into your uh, Western European type cultures that come through. So let me let me let me switch gears a little bit then. So I, I think we've done a, I think you've done a great job of of setting the scene. So so tell us a bit about Minus 13 and what it hopes to achieve and what support you have. But before we do that, I, I'm curious about somebody who has the opposite view. So the view you, you presented is super curious and interesting, and I can see all the dimensions. What if we were speaking to someone who was like, nope, that's not how it is. You know, this is the way we need to think about incarceration. What would they be saying? So I think that what, would, what they would be saying is something around the lines of, you know, people need to be punished they need to have their rights taken away when they commit a crime and they go to jail. And so because of that, their slave labor is part of the penance they must pay back to society in order to, to get back in or in order to pay off whatever crime they committed. Um, and so the, the one comment I would then make to them also, and this is a bit of a tangent from minus 13, but is – we as a society, whenever you commit a crime, if you are a felon, if you are a convicted felon, um, we as a society will tend to make you pay for that crime for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. There is no, when you come out of prison, you're not on parole. Uh, effectively, your slate is clean with the state. You have done your time. We will not let people, we will not let people move on from that. Um, you see it in, you know, there's uh, certain certain areas, there are applications for a job where it has the, have you been convicted of a felony in the last five years, right? That's a very discriminatory practice. There's things like I, if you if you ask any company, you know, the, you go to uh, you go to the HR department and say, what is your policy on hiring felons? On people who have served their time, they're they're not under parole. There's there's you know they're they're again they're in that clean slate. Um, a lot of times you'll get well, it depends on the crime, right? And it depends on there's a lot of things that they'll answer. But effectively, if somebody is 
working side by side with somebody who is a convicted felon, you know, asking people, how do you feel about that? Are you going to discriminate against them because of a mistake that they made, right? And so that, that, would, be, that would be a problem with saying that they need to pay their penance because as a society, as a culture, we're going to make them pay for the rest of their lives for it. And that's, that's a whole other, that's a whole other. That's probably a whole. And that, other I mean, I mean, for, I mean. So if I take the lens of it from you know, use the HR department, HR policy land. If I take if I take that perspective, then you're then you're protecting organizational risk. You have a duty of care to the rest of your employees who have not been convicted of a crime. Um, Correct. And so, so I, I, I can see why I can see why you'd have equally strong arguments um, against employing ex-convicts. Agreed, because I think we run into that issue as well because we don't have the support prob- we don't have the support for for folks whenever they come out of prison. So one of the biggest problems having having talked to several uh, people who've been released from being incarcerated is you know they, they don't they don't have the network. A lot of times their family has already ostracized them. They, they, they don't have anybody when they come out who cares if they live or die. And so we don't give them the support that they need to reintegrate. We say, hey, guess what? You're free. Go enjoy yourself, right? But we don't give them much in terms of how do you actually get a job? Who's, who's going to advocate for you when you've got these cultural barriers that, that are there? And, and I'll, I'll, I'll map this back into minus 13 and how, how this really starts to impact um, and – because one of the problems we have is the number of black males that are in the criminal justice system. Um, you know, black male, black Americans or black males in the United States, they account for about seven and a half percent of the total population. But they account for 35 percent of the total prison population. And, and I want just kind of just let those numbers sink in in terms of, of the disparity in in people that are in the male populations in prison. And we can map this back to the 13th Amendment um, because right after the 13th Amendment was passed, after the, after the emancipation of the slaves, all of a sudden you have these things pop up in the South called the Black Code, which were all these laws that suddenly started getting broken by the, the newly freed black slaves. And they didn't even... Most of them didn't even know they were breaking the law at the time, but this was a way that the powers that be could control, could control this new group that has just come out of, uh, that has just been freed. That and, and in a lot of ways, it's how they work to control the voting block because black males suddenly now are full citizens and they had the ability in 18, 1865 and beyond, they had the ability to control the voting block. And so you start seeing the way the political parties behaved at the time was all around how do I control this voting block? And you see the black code come out of this, which is a precursor to Jim Crow laws. And you start seeing all of a sudden you start having prisoners now, people being duly convicted of a crime, as the 13th Amendment says, that is then thrown back into this world that they just came from, but they've also lost their ability to vote. And so this is where Florida and the people of Florida voting to allow their convicts the ability to vote. This is where a lot of those things came from because once duly convicted, they'd lose their ability to vote and they were able to control that voting block. 
and and the biggest and, and and as you start seeing this this evolve culturally within the United States, you know, you look in the some of the advertisements from the early parts of the 21st century. I mean, black males were used to criminalize or be or really kind of be the example of what not to do, of bad behavior, right? You'd like if you look at the way marijuana, for example, was criminalized, they use black males saying, hey, black, they're gonna smoke dope, listen to their jazz music, and rape white women, right? This is and this is how it was used to criminalize it using that behavior. And this continued cultural reinforcements, uh, you know, what was the Disney movie Song of the South, which is so racist they won't even put it on Disney Plus, or the crows in the original Dumbo. And 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 this is indoctrination of children at this point, where they're starting to see these stereotypes and they're starting to see how black people are less than human. So it allows them to get away with all the nasty stuff that we've seen happen just in the 20th century and even in the 21st century, where people feel like it's it's justified. And so minus 13 is there because we look at this exception clause as part of the problem, as the thing that is enabling that behavior. And so if we can eliminate that, then we can start to, we can, we can have more of a conversation about how we really reach a point of equity um, amongst all people. And because as, as long as, as long as we treat our prisoners this way, especially as long as we see it divided so heavily down racial lines, um, it, it's just not going to happen. And, you know, and thankfully, my wife and I also have seen the cultural shifts that are starting to happen. I mean, we are a first generation after the civil rights movement. And so we are hopeful that, uh, that we are part of how we can get us to the next stage of this conversation. Do you, do you, well. do you see that? Do you see that, Sean, like, like part of an incremental effort to carry the baton on for the next generation? Or do you see it part of this is a moment in time for... For a, for a seismic change, I'm very curious as to how you see that. Um, I, I honestly see it as as a way to carry on the the baton and pass it on to the next uh, to the next generation. Um, you know, it was really interesting. the The thing I always loved, uh, <laughs> it, one of my favorite speeches by uh, President Obama was his farewell speech. Actually. Um, which I know sounds weird, but and it's not because I was glad to see him leave. It was just because of of the way he described how his daughters were going to see racism. How he was explaining how our children are not going to see race the same way that we see race, right? And and I think it's I think it's amazing to see because ever since my daughter was born in 2011, um, more than 50 percent of all children born in the United States have been mixed race. So it's starting to, you know, it's starting to breed, if you will, this this kind of thought and this culture out of existence. And and it takes three to four generations, I believe, for that to really happen. I mean, if we think about from emancipation of the slaves to the civil rights movement was about almost about 100 years. So we could say it's three to four generations to get to that point where we could have legislation. And now... My wife and I are benefited from that legislation. And so now we'll see that sort of evolve over. The, so I think by the time we get to my grandkids or great-grandkids, that I think the definition of how, 
how we think about race today will be something very different than than what we uh, than what it is now. So you so oh, sorry, go ahead, Vicky. Go ahead. Uh, okay, so I was thinking about the Thirteenth Amendment exception, and uh, your goal was minus thirteen to remove the exception. If I understand you correctly, is that correct? It it is. It's it's that that's a like almost the penultimate goal. Um, but the way we're looking at it right now is we're looking at it at the state level on making mm. it. There are, there are currently three states who have made it illegal, um, have, have kind of closed the loophole for themselves. Um, Nebraska, Colorado, and Utah have all closed this loophole for themselves. And so, so we're targeting the, the state level first. State level. Okay. So if the loopholes are closed, can people still not be incarcerated and, and the same problems exist so so if you know if if the 13th amendment exception is eliminated and it's dealt with at the state level um i can see the value in that but i'm curious how would that change behavior can people still not continue to be incarcerated and kept in the system even without that it it, i would say it would be a step in that direction but it's not going to it's not going to solve it it I think it's going to help us get on the right path to, you know, I, I think the first step for us is to treat them as people and to treat them as human beings, not something less than human beings. Um, human beings that make that, that made a mistake somewhere along the way. And I think we can all say that we've made mistakes and, you know, that. that. But it, it, it's really about giving them an opportunity not allowing them or removing the incentives to keeping them in the system. I think we need to get the privatization of our prison systems out of there as well. But that, that's, a, that's another topic. That's a different yeah. topic. But. So, so the, 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 minor, the 13th Amendment exception is, is, is like the final piece of a, a large behavioral change that needs to happen, starting yeah, it, with belief systems. It's also a powerful symbol, though, the way I read you. It's also a very powerful symbol because it, it kind of removes cross-tensions baked into, in this case, the Constitution. Mm. It, it does. It, it does. Um, you know, I, I've often said that the problem with the 13th Amendment is it's not the three-fifths compromise, but it's, it, it's, it's still of that ilk that we're still allowing, we're still allowing the behavior in some form or fashion. And so I think if we can get rid of Get rid of it, all the barriers. I mean, you know, to, to go to even a meta level, the way the way my wife and I kind of view the world is is we want we want to do this because we believe that you know the role of the government should be to provide an opportunity for every person to achieve their their highest or fullest potential, and the things that we want to do is remove the barriers that that can that prevent that. That, and that's what, and so the Thirteenth Amendment is one of those barriers that we want to be able to remove. And like I said, I've even told my children who are you know ten or nine and seven years old that they they better get ready because this is going to be a multi generational piece to actually make it to a point to where we change the United States Constitution. But um, you know we want to do a, we want to have this groundswell amongst the states to make that change first. Fabulous people reinventing the world, right? Sean, uh, just just on on that, um, I, 
Who have you who have you got as part of this? Like, what support do you have? I guess two parts of the question: What support do you have? What support do you need? So the things that we're going to do um, within this quarter is kind of milestones for 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 the organization. Is there are uh, a few groups that exist already. There's the anti-slavery network um, that we want to join and uh, f- join their coalition of groups to to kind of combat this. Um, and then, but what we also done is we're, we've actually used, dug into our own network and we have a friend that is a, a senator within the Washington State Senate that um, she's going to help us. And she does a lot of work for um, women of color and uh, Native American women as well and, and working with them. And what we want to do, but she's going to help us to really navigate what it looks like to build the policy or build the things. Because in Washington State, what we it'll be a it'll be a ballot initiative that we would need to get, and she's going to help us navigate that process. And and actually, the newly elected representative, our newly elected state uh, representative from our district, is a friend as well. But she is fresh on the job for two weeks, so we're gonna we're gonna let her. Get, get a breather, let, let her catch up uh, before we start asking her these questions. But um, but yeah, they're going to help us. Plus, we have a, another friend who writes policy uh, for King County who's going to help us understand the ins and outs of of how do you actually write a piece of policy that, that will get enacted or even get uh, put into the state constitution to close the loophole. So are you, are you looking for... I mean, I mean, it sounds to me almost like you're in that early stages where you're, you're, you have the idea, it's germinated an idea, you've got some level of support, you're trying to build out the ecosystem for this nonprofit. Is that fair? That's fair. Okay. That's fair. So what would accelerate that? Are there, are there types of people that you want to try to get interested or involved in this? Is there, like, what's the rallying cry that we, that, that you would, you might want to use? Yeah, either this platform or whoever listens to this at some point say, oh, I could think of someone that might be able to help Sean or or it would be good to connect minus 13 with someone else who's working in an X area. I'm, I'm really, I'm curious as to how, how you're thinking about that. Are you and AJ are thinking about that at the moment? So I think um, what we would like to do is th- there are several groups that are addressing part of this. And I think the way we've talked about it is building a coalition of groups that actually come together and pool resources um, because there are different things like in Washington State, there's an organization called Unloop, which is about how do you break the recidivism cycle within the prisons, which I, which would be which would be a good partner to have. There's uh, Families of Color Seattle, which is a, a, a nonprofit my wife and I actually have worked very deeply with um, previously. And leveraging those resources that are there, and and all the and there are several just several other organizations that we would like to 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 bring together and kind of pool the resources together to build this grassroots campaign to get get the ballot initiative going because it's not going to be easy, and you know we're going to want every organization that that has resources to spare would be good to have as we kind of go through it. Um, initially, my wife and I are funding this personally. So we're, we're putting things together and going to put the funding together. And so we're doing all the things of 
forming the board charter, you know, looking for an ED, all those things to, to, to handle the administration of everything. But it's also um, being able to get groups together to, to really amplify the voice, have amplified voices on this issue. That's wonderful. Vicky, any comments, thoughts? Yeah, I'm curious about the multi-generational nature of this problem, because as you say, it's not an easy one to fix. You know, there's so much belief and mindset and behavioral change that's required. And as you were talking about the organizations and organizations looking at, are you prepared to have somebody in your organization who has been previously incarcerated? And what will come up for many people listening to this is, you know, do I, do I, would I, would I give them that opportunity? Would I not? Um, I'm curious how you see the future generations taking on this charge, your children, like where do you think things will be? Well, where do you hope things will be by the time um, your kids are ready to take this on? And what would that look like? So what I would love to see, um, and I, and I equate this, there was a book I read when I was really young called You Can't Eat Peanuts in Church. Um, and other little-known laws, right? A lot of these laws actually came out of the last pandemic. There was a lot of laws about spitting on the sidewalk, and and all these laws are still on the books, so they're very much still there. And and what the way I've kind of viewed it is uh, my goal, or what I would love to see happen, is this kind of it's almost a cultural revolution where they have all these things on the books and these attitudes that are held in these systems, but because we the people no longer value what that says that you know a law is only as good as it's enforced right so if if we don't have a tolerance for the type of discriminatory practices that we've seen be it with the police force be it with this then it becomes a non entity because ultimately we have the power to decide what gets what what gets enforced and what doesn't it it goes back to that you can't eat peanuts in church, right? I think that might be in Oklahoma where that law is. And, but, you know, nobody's going to get arrested for it. So it, it's just becomes a, a footnote in history. And that's what I, that's what, that would be my goal is that by the time my children are in power or in positions of leadership or even my grandchildren, that, that the way we talk about that Black Lives Matter is, something to be remembered, but is a footnote because they just won't understand how you could treat somebody different just because of the color of their skin. And that would be my ultimate goal. So even if even if we don't reach a point because just the politics of of getting a constitutional amendment through or making a change to one, um, even if we're not able to achieve that, if we can we as a people can remove the power of that exception clause, then I think we've we've achieved our goal. Yeah, that is a magnificent goal to um, to think about. I mean, let's talk about reinventing the world. I mean, changing the constitution. <laughs> no, I, I, that's I a you, big, hairy, audacious well, goal. One of the reasons why right. yeah, I mean, I mean, for for all sorts of reasons, uh, given the current you know the current narrative we've got around you know COVID, Black Lives Matter, and, and even the civil unrest earlier this year, um, it it. it what, what I, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this particular podcast with Sean is I, I think there's a tendency for us to think that you can make systemic changes quickly. Like, you know, 
if someone someone could just fix it, like an engineering problem, let's fix it, you know? And 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 I think that hopefully what this podcast episode has given many people is you know, if you if you truly take on an audacious reinvent the world type problem, it may it, it, it is going to take well, it's gonna take more than a village and it's gonna take a long period of time because systemic change really tends to occur more through the slow, the slow, constant application of pressure rather than single events. And, and, but we're, we're quite, you know, we're quite ADD, right? We want to, want to do something fixed tomorrow. We want to do something fixed tomorrow, you know? And I think, you know, the more we can get people to think about how do we fix these things over the long term? And in this case, you know, multi-generational long-term, you actually have a much better chance of actually doing something that, that is going to make a profound difference as opposed to things that make us feel good in the moment. And, um, and that's kind of really, I, I hope I did that justice, Sean. Uh, that, was, uh, that was unplanned um, the way I went through that. But I, I'm hoping I captured the essence of how you're thinking about it well. It, it is. And, and I, I would add that, <clears throat> you know, I... Yeah, I saw. I believe it was. I saw a quote um, from uh, Rosario Dawson, and and I and I believe she said, you know, she said, well, I want equality now. I don't want to have to wait for it. And it was very much a, uh, very much a. I need to have it now. And I'm like, I, I feel it. I I understand. I understand. You know, I I. I can see it. I, I sympathize with what what she's what what she's feeling. I mean, I, I can't truly empathize. I mean, I I had a very, you know, I had a you know a male white middle class background. So there's a lot there's a lot that gets wrapped up in that that I'm not able to not able to experience. But I, I, it's also you know it's something that's existed for 500 years is not going to get unraveled in 10 or. Five or in the next ten minutes, right? I mean, is, these are these are things that are embedded in our culture, and and they're things that that are going to take time to shift and change. And and I and I talked a lot about the civil rights movement is is a, is a big moment because a lot of the way these these changes occur is you start to have a groundswell that a change needs to happen, but it's a very polarizing issue. And what happens is. The government then goes through and the, the powers that be put laws in place to force tolerance, meaning that I get it, you don't like it, but you've got to tolerate it. And, and if, you don't, if you can't tolerate it, then you're going to be breaking the law and you're going to have to pay a penalty for that. And so what that does, though, is that it puts us on the path to acceptance. And it, it's, it's understanding that there's a big difference between tolerance and acceptance, but the law helps us get there. And so now that Things are in law again, you know. Uh, first generation, I'm first generation past civil rights movement. We're starting to see these cultural norms start to break down and change as acceptance starts to occur over time, and that's what that's where we get to that three to four generations past that moment. So emancipation of the slaves, three to four generations we now have civil rights movement within three to four then we'll have a full acceptance and and we'll see that I think we'll see that that it doesn't um, that the way we like President Obama said the way we see race today is not how we, the way we'll see race then 
But I do want to follow that up with, and this is why things like Minus 13 and Black Lives Matter and these groups are important. It's not an excuse to take your foot off the gas pedal. It's not an excuse to, to not be vigilant. It's not an excuse to fight injustice. It's, it's like uh, MLK, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. said, um, and, I, and I hope I don't destroy this quote, but it's uh, um, injustice. Uh, it's the one where it's injustice anywhere is injust is injustice everywhere or, or something along those lines. And please look that up for me because I know I, I didn't do it justice. I didn't do it do it right. But um, but it, it's that thing where you know we've always got to be vigilant of where the the darker sides of human nature is. Uh, I, I think I have the quote. There. So let me let me let me try to save you and tell me if okay. this is the quote you were thinking of. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in the inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. And that was from a, a letter from the Birmingham jail. That was, that is correct. That was the quote. That was the quote. So thank you for saving me on that one. I, I'm not sure if I want to continue with this. It's like you end with a, you end with an ML, MLK quote and, and, I can't top that. So let's call this podcast a wrap. Um, thank you so much, Vicky and Sean. And um, welcome to 2021, which hopefully will be better than 2020. Thank you, Vips. Thank you, Sean. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone. And be fabulous. Mm-hmm.